the new coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19, continue to spread, colleges and universities across the U.S. are racing to put courses that had been meeting in person online. And with a growing number of K-12 school districts now closing schools as well, many educators and families are turning to digital resources in an attempt to keep students learning. Will the disruption caused by the new coronavirus accelerate the growth of online learning in American education? Or is it possible that our forced experiment with online learning will backfire? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael Horn, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation and an executive editor at Education Next. Michael's new column, COVID-19 Boosts to Online Learning May Backfire, is available now at educationnext.org, and I'm pleased to have the chance to discuss it with him from a safe distance today. Michael, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marty, even if we're virtual. Well, as the title of your piece indicates, you are skeptical of the view that this disruption is going to be some kind of a boon for online education, but you can see that on the surface, that view has some appeal, that this might seem like a classic opportunity for disruptive innovation. So what is disruptive innovation and why might someone expect that that process would unfold as a result of what we're experiencing now? Sure thing. So disruptive innovation is the process that transforms things that are complicated, expensive, deeply inaccessible and typically centralized uh, into things that are far more affordable, convenient, accessible and simple and so forth. And they start with serving what we call non-consumers, people who are literally unable to access uh, or afford or have the expertise to use the dominant products and services of the time. And uh, they start with primitive products and services, things that you would say, you know, if, if you're not a non-consumer, you'd look at it and say, that's not very good. I'd prefer to continue to do what I have today. Uh, but the disruptive innovation plants itself among these non-consumers in this primitive state. And then powered by a technology enabler, it gets better and better over time. And so I think that's the segue, I guess, in, into, your, uh, in, into how this might fit that mold, which is to say, I think a lot of... Uh, schools, K-12 and colleges and universities, frankly, are rushing to move resources online right now, to move classes online, and they are going to be primitive. They're going to be serving people who do not have access uh, to traditional schools because they're closed right now. And the hope or the argument might go, well, they're primitive today, but they're going to be forced to make them better and better over time, uh, which will improve the experience. And at some point, people will say, hey, I like this more affordable, simple, convenient, accessible way, perhaps, of uh, consuming learning, I'd like to opt for more of the online learning. And uh, you might see schooling transformed, I guess, would be the argument. So the basic idea is that as a result of these unusual circumstances we find ourselves in right now, the test that an online learning experience or product needs to pass is no longer, is it better than the real thing? The question is, is it better than nothing at all? Can it beat non-consumption? And that's exactly if the alternative is, is uh, impossible, the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, this is the kind of logic that you and Clayton Christensen have applied to predict the gradual transformation of learning as a result of new technology over time. Where does the logic break down in thinking of this moment as an accelerator to that process? 
And I'm glad you said gradual transition, because I think a lot of people think of disruptive innovation as an overnight phenomenon, right? That all of a sudden the world flips, but gradual is the right way to think about it. I think the reason I'm skeptical is that a shock of this nature, certainly not in our calculus, uh, is likely, or at least at the moment we think, will be temporary. And so students and parents, let's take higher education for a moment, they're not comparing this to the alternative, which is nothing at all. They're comparing it to their alternative, which was learning in classes and living in residential communities with their classmates uh, until a few weeks ago. And so in faced with the uh, hope, I suppose, that things will go back to normal come the fall, uh, then I think it, it's sort of a temporary blip against which you'll say, well, that was really crummy, uh, not what we had hoped for. Now, there's two counter narratives to that, I suppose. One is uh, this stretches on much longer than at the moment we think it will, in which case, it could look like true non-consumption and people will start comparing it to their alternative, which really is no classroom learning uh, and no co-residential experiences and the like. And the second, frankly, is that perhaps, you know, faculty and students at traditional institutions will really dislike uh, the online learning experiences, which is my hunch that they're going to be sort of hastily thrown together and not that great. And people will not be comparing it against nothing. They're going to be comparing it against what they used to have and say, can't wait to get back to that. Uh, but potentially some people, if it stretches on, will start to say, well, I'd actually like to go to places that do online learning well, and they'll look to the disruptors like Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, Arizona State University, and the like, and they will start to, you know, at the margins, right, flock there for a far more affordable, uh, convenient experience and say, I'm not going to shell out 30000 whatever dollars it might be, uh, far more if you're at Harvard, I suppose, uh, to attend a brick and mortar experience that is fundamentally not happening and not happening anytime soon. But right now, at least, it's not a traditional story of technology opening up a market or a service to people who previously couldn't afford it. In fact, the people who are being served online all of a sudden are exactly those who were already consuming. And so it's exactly a different right. clientele. But you also bring up the question of the quality of the experience that students, including students at Harvard, starting next week, are going to have. Uh, it seems to me that there's a big difference between designing an online learning opportunity from scratch and putting one together in the middle of courses that are already up and running. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what could go wrong in yeah. just hastily moving a course online. Well, I think we've sort of seen it, frankly, in a lot of the first MOOCs, massive open online courses that we saw up here in 2011-12, just throwing a lecture on screen and hoping that people will consume it, uh, not thinking about instructional design and the principles of learning science that we've uh, continued to see developed in terms of how you chunk information, in terms of how you scaffold, in terms of how you create an engaging experience. Uh, that learners want to uh, dive into. If you're doing a seminar or something like that and you say, well, it's simple, I'll just do Zoom. It turns out that having protocols and culture and thoughtfulness around how you conduct such a class and how you think about background noise and people talking over each other, trying to throw that up in the midst of uh, a semester with very little planning, very little resources, very little backing is going to be incredibly taxing. And frankly, we just you know, just slapping your existing lecture materials online and trying to create visuals out of them or trying to create compelling experiences 
in many cases, I suspect it'll be laughable at best. And in a lot of cases, it could be detrimental, frankly, at worst, because they could turn people off to learning, overload them uh, in terms of their working memory capacity and things of that nature, and create a really crummy experience that causes people to say, what is this? This is terrible. I don't want it to have anything to do with online learning from universities. As a faculty member who's in the process of trying to make this transition from two courses that I'm offering this semester uh, prior to spring break being in person uh, and in the process now of putting them online. Uh, one of the ways I've been thinking about it is that it seems like your initial instinct is how can I use this new technology available to me? Zoom seems to be the dominant player right now uh, in order to replicate as closely as possible what traditionally goes on in the classroom, what we have been doing. Uh, and it seems to me that the answer to that question is, despite the fact that Zoom and I assume its competitors seem to work a lot better than what was available a couple of years ago, it's still very uh, a far cry from being in person together in real time. Uh, rather than trying to think about this opportunity as a chance to replicate what we had been doing, it seems to me the right way to think about online learning is how do we take advantage of the change in format to offer a different type of learning experience, one that maybe accomplishes the same goals, but in a very different way that takes advantage of, for example, the fact that not everything needs to be done with everyone doing the same thing at the same pace at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that a distinction that, I don't know, those of you who uh, work in this space find to be important? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, which is I'd step back and say, what are the learning objectives of my course? What do I want to have students be able to know and do at the end? And how can I best accomplish every single individual being able to get there, right? And, and move from sort of a credit hour or seat time mentality to not quite a competency-based one, because I understand that the government regulations uh, won't necessarily uh, let you do that. They still want to see the hours. But, but that mindset, at least, that I want to see people actually mastering it and therefore, we might, to your point, create different experiences for different students at different times. I think the other principles I would take is a lot of traditional learning experiences are very passive. How can we create very active learning experiences that mirror the literature on the benefits of active learning, uh, ones in which there is synchronous communication, uh, but also frequent opportunities as we do so for students to answer questions, defend their answers, debate their peers, tackle problems, and the like. Um, I think the second thing is don't necessarily assume that the faculty member, and, and hopefully you'll take this in stride, Marty, uh, has to be front and center, like what the MOOCs did. You know, certain concepts that might be better accomplished uh, through a, a variety of other formats or, or leaning on other people who've created multimedia objects to explain concepts, as opposed to thinking that we just have to do lecture capture technologies or technologies that put the faculty at the center uh, to create something. And, and so I think it's, to your point, it's questioning the assumptions underpinning the courses that we've traditionally taught and say, how can we try to take a very different uh, tact on it that, that mirrors the learning sciences and really focuses on the objectives that we want to uh, have all students lead with? That sounds exactly right to me, but it also strikes me as uh, a daunting set of questions to be asking sure. in the middle of a, a semester. And my experience, at least, is that uh, creating a course from scratch to take advantage of the online format is a is a big task and and so um 
uh, we'll have to see how it goes. Let, let's turn our attention, though, to K-12. A week ago, I think this was mainly something people were thinking about as a higher education story, but the last statistics I saw said that close to half of the nation's 100,000 K-12 schools are closed. Um, a lot of parents home with kids trying to figure out in some cases with, in some cases without guidance from the school district as to how they should be supporting their students. What's, what's different about the K-12 space and uh, how's this process likely to play out there? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in higher ed, the social experience is, is just that. It's sort of the opportunity to be with other people and come of age and so forth, at least when we're talking about the 18, 19, 20-year-old students, right? In K-12, the in-person experience plays a fundamental custodial role of keeping people safe and so that parents can work, right, and, and be gainfully employed. And all of a sudden, we're creating tremendous stresses on both of those things as, uh, you know, frontline employees who are parents uh, are having to stay home, obviously, and try to get work done when they're also trying to be the caretakers for their children. And, by the way, hope that they do something productive along the way, uh, depending on uh, their orientation or the school system, right? And so I think the challenge is, uh, are enormously complex now because it's not just we're not just trying to master virtual work at scale. We're trying to master virtual work with children at home that need uh, adult uh, support and interaction. Yeah, as I think about the question I asked, I my head goes to exactly the same place, which is I think we're going to have a increased appreciation for the latent custodial function of yeah. schools uh, and the uh, challenges that having that disrupted creates. Uh, there are though all these ed tech companies, content providers that are really getting out there via press releases, email announcements uh, to get their products in front of as many families as possible. Uh, what advice would you have for parents trying to navigate that space? Gosh, it's a sea of stuff out there right now. I know that uh, so many folks have not just tried to shill their products out, but a lot of them are offering it for free increasingly. And uh, I think one of the central questions and challenges, and I'm, I'm actually really curious your take on this as well, is, is the school district stepping in or the school stepping in and saying, this is the schedule, these are the sets of resources, this is how it aligns, and this is what we expect your kids to do from nine to two or whatever the hours might be, right? Uh, or is the school saying, nope, we're not doing anything with this, and it's the parent who is navigating this, in which case uh, you're sort of trying to create a schedule that optimizes between uh, allowing yourself to work and being honest with that, uh, and on the other hand, uh, and sort of occupying your kids so that they don't interrupt conference calls and the like, uh, and then, but also trying to get them something beneficial out of it. And, and from my experience, at least, if I'm a parent in that latter situation, I would try to be easy on myself uh, and try not to be overly harsh about the, the obstacles that are in the way, uh, but come up with a clear rhythm and schedule to the day, first and foremost, of this is the expectations. We're all going to get dressed just like we used to. We're going to brush our teeth. We're going to be eating breakfast by this hour. And this is sort of the set of activities that will then occur, whether it's, you know, quiet reading into, uh, say, some math, 
uh, with Khan Academy or, some, or a free resource, and I know STMath and Zern and other high quality providers now are making their stuff free uh, to parents. And then we're gonna move into some sort of physical activity or project or whatever. We'll all have lunch together. And then in the afternoon, uh, there's gonna be some screen time to occupy and there better be some outdoor time as well uh, because I think the kids <laughs> really need that, A. Uh, but it's probably an important opportunity for all of us to make sure that we get outside. Whatever your schedule is as a parent, I, I'm not sure there's a right one. It's the right one that fits your needs. But from my perspective, making sure you have that daily rhythm is almost more important than figuring out which software am I going to use and stuff like that. That sounds exactly right to me. I can also say that uh, based on the experience in the West household in days one to two of this uh, uh, condition, it's easier said than, than done. Uh, at least take some practice to, to get it right. Uh, you know, one of the things I've been tracking in the communication that we've been getting from uh, the uh, public school district where one of my sons is in elementary school, Newton Public Schools here in Massachusetts. I've been noticing that the superintendent has been saying that he's gonna be providing, the district and its schools will be providing a range of enrichment activities, but they haven't been suggesting that they're going to try to replace or fully substitute for what would otherwise be going on in the schools. And if I think about the, uh, how that compares to the communication in higher education, in higher education, you have schools saying, look, we are putting our content online. We are allowing you to progress towards your degree in exactly the same way you otherwise would be. I guess that to some extent reflects the fact that higher education institutions have paying consumers uh, and they're not expecting to refund a tuition or a significant share of tuition at least uh, they need to assure people that the product is not compromised, whereas the school districts have a little more flexibility along those lines. Yeah, I think it's been fascinating to watch that dynamic. I totally agree with your observation. Uh, what's been interesting to your point is colleges and universities feeling like not only do they want to serve the customers who are in fact paying, but I think they're actually very scared, right, that if they don't do so, that the ask for refunds will increase in intensity. And we know colleges and universities, many of them, uh, particularly the tuition dependent ones, are on shaky ground financially across the country. And for them to have to do mass refunds could be catastrophic in some cases. And so I think there's a real worry there. Uh, frankly, I think the story is not written completely yet in higher ed because a lot of the checks that go into colleges and universities, at least the residential ones, are for uh, housing fees and room and board, things like that, uh, not the actual studying, if you will. And I think it's gonna be very hard to not refund some of that, but again, that could be catastrophic because those are fixed costs uh, that the colleges and universities have in some cases already incurred. And so I'm, I wonder how that's gonna play itself out. In K-12, to your point, not paying customers, the states in many cases are not providing very clear guidance about around expectations for learning, around what this will do from an exams perspective. Curious uh, if there've been conversations, Marty, at the board uh, of, of education in, in Massachusetts around this uh, set of questions in terms of expectations, but there's still sort of been a, well, we've gotten through March mentality, therefore we're, you know, with state of emergencies, we're freed from the seat time restrictions. Maybe our obligations are over. One of the currents I would also, I, I, I've been trying to puzzle my way through this, You've seen places like the Seattle Public Schools basically say, 
we're not going to actually offer any online resources or curriculum in place of our existing classes because of fears of inequity. In other words, certain families and students won't be able to access them online. So we're going to do nothing at all outside of a little enrichment here and there. Uh, and I, I'm, it, it strikes me as a strange sort of message to be playing with, uh, to not do anything. Uh, at the same time, I understand the worry of not serving all. And so it's, it seems like an interesting tension out there. Yeah, I think there's both the question of the message, uh, but also the question of the actual consequences with respect to equity of taking that kind of approach. Because mm -hmm. yes, you could imagine how providing resources uh, would advantage most those families who are best positioned to take advantage of those resources, but not providing resources may even actually exacerbate the differences in capacity that families have. Uh, and so I would get concerned not just about how people would respond to that messaging and thinking about how the district is attending to their child's progress, but actually what the real consequences of that approach would be for uh, equity in a district. I think that's exactly right. I, I have the same concern, which is that to say that affluent families or families that uh, have certain resources and means to be able to put education resources around their, their, their children, uh, regardless of what the school says, we're going to be doing a set of things, right? We're, we're, we're in the Horn household, we're creating a schedule, we're starting to think through creative STEM and STEAM activities. We will be using, uh, you know, my kids are younger than yours, but we will be using some online learning resources uh, once we get through what had been a planned uh, spring break. Uh, for, uh, for them, if nothing else, uh, to do some glorified babysitting that gets a little bit of enrichment along the way, but we will be doing a set of things, right? If you're certain families where you don't have that at your disposal, the social network, social capital, maybe to uh, figure out where to go for that, the district not providing it, I think really could exacerbate some uh, inequality that already exists, of course, but it's almost like, how do we get to 80% of the district covered as opposed to 50% and then that 20% that really fell through the cracks, we'll do intensive uh, support of them when, when school resumes, would sort of be my own mindset, I think. So we've gotten some advice from Michael Horn to higher education faculty, to school districts, to parents. Uh, at the end of the day, what do you think will be the legacy of the coronavirus for education technology? Gosh, you know, I, I think at, at the very least, it's obviously going to expose everyone uh, to the presence of a lot of tools that they did not know existed. I think it really depends on how long the interruption goes for, though. If the interruption is really just through the spring semester, I think it will marginally cause you know, certain faculty to be disgusted with online learning, certain students to have a terrible experience and taste in their mouth. Others will sort of move toward a more affordable solution where it's done well. Uh, and things of that nature, but it'll be sort of at the margins. If this stretches on for you know much longer, and frankly, we just don't know right now, then I think we could be having a different conversation that it could be online learning's moment because online learning will have to get better and better in a much longer time horizon than the rush to just throw your lesson plans online uh, in haste in the middle of a semester, which as you said, is a lot of work and really not an easy exercise and, and, and a very easy exercise to do really poorly. And so I think it really depends on the length of the interruption is my own take. I, for one, am hoping that that interruption is as uh, short as possible. Amen. My guest today has been Michael Horn, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovations and executive editor at Education Next.
You can find this column, COVID-19 Boost to Online Learning May Backfire, at educationnext.org. And of course, if you're looking for reading material in this shutdown, his recent book, Choosing College, is available online. Uh, Michael, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.